It's finally here. We're up to principle number 12 of the 13 principles of faith. This is the penultimate principle as codified by Rambam. And you recall these principles are the preconditions to our religion. These are the building blocks of our religion. If you want to understand Judaism, if you want to embrace Judaism, if you want to observe Judaism, and you want to study it and get into it, these are the 13 building blocks as codified by Rambam. And as we mentioned in the past, as were accepted by the Jewish people. Now, we spoke about this in the past, just to review. The 13 principles are broken down into three general sections. Section one talks about God. You have to believe in God, of course, if you want to have Torah, if you want to have our religion. But what does that mean? That was comprised of five different principles. And then we had four principles about prophecy and the prophecy of Moshe and the and the divinity of the Torah and the fact that the Torah that we have today is the same Torah that we were given at Sinai. So that's the middle section, which is Torah and prophecy. And the third and final section of the 13 principles talks about reward and punishment. God knows everything. God will dispense reward and punishment. And now we are up to principle number 12, and that is the Messiah and the Messianic era. This is a very big subject. As you know, I've been anticipating it greatly. I'm really excited to start. So let's begin. And we're going to begin by citing Rambam in his own words. Now, you may recall the Rambam wrote many incredible works. He wrote, of course, a magisterial work of philosophy where he was able to talk about the Torah and our philosophy and our theology and present it in a way that was palatable to the governing philosophy of his time, to Greek philosophy. And that, of course, is the Guide to the Perplexed, the Morinavuchem. He also wrote the first complete commentary on all 63 books of Mishnah. So, of course, Mishnah is the work of Oral Torah. And it has 63 books in six different orders. And the Rambam wrote a commentary on all 63 books. And he also wrote a complete recounting of the Oral Torah where he culled and codified and crystallized all of oral Torah into one system in the Mishnah Torah. Now, the 13 principles of faith come in the Rambam's comment to Mishnah. In the end of the book of Sanhedrin, the Rambam says, okay, we're talking about all these eschatological subjects. I'm going to lay out for you the 13 principles of our faith. And I want to begin by reading the Rambam in his own words first in his commentary to Mishnah and then in his Mishnah Torah, that great sprawling and authoritative work on all of oral Torah. So the Rambam tells us in his comment to Mishnah that the principle number 12, and that is the days of Messiah, Yemos HaMashiach, Vuhulahamin, what does it mean to believe and to render as true? that Messiah will come in the right time 
and he won't come any later than he's supposed to come. And if he tarries, if it's taken him a while, wait for him. And don't try to calculate and try to study and scrutinize the verses and try to figure out and prognosticate and forecast when he is coming. Quote the Talmud, the bones of those people who calculate when Messiah is coming, those bones of those people will bloat. Okay, so to believe that he's coming, we have to know it's true, but not to calculate and try to figure out when the Messiah is arriving. And we also have to believe that this king, king Messiah, will have greater stature than all the kings that have ever existed, as per was prophesied to us from all the prophets, beginning with Moshe until the very end of prophecy with Malachi, with Malachi. And whoever has a doubt in the Messiah or minimizes the stature of Messiah, that person is repudiating Torah. Because the Torah, in several places, tells us about Messiah. So if you don't believe Messiah, you don't believe in Torah. You're rejecting verses, explicit verses in the Torah. And included in this principle is that our monarchy goes through the line of David, specifically via Solomon, the Davidic line via Solomon. And if you question that, and you question the legitimacy of this family and this line, included in this principle is to believe of the lineage of Messiah and Jewish kings coming through David and Solomon. So when he lays out this principle, he's incorporating six basic ideas. A, to believe in the Messianic era, to anticipate and to yearn it, the idea of timing, he's not going to delay, and we're not going to calculate and forecast when it will be coming. The persona of Messiah, it's the greatest king. He is the greatest king in history and the lineage, family of David through Solomon. This is a very important subject. It's a very misunderstood subject. And it's really central to Jewish life. So, of course, if it's part of the 13 principles, it is a necessary component of our belief. The Rambam tells us elsewhere that if you don't believe in this, well, you're disincluded, you're excluded from Olam Abba, which, of course, we already defined. That's really what you want. You want Olam Abba. And if you don't believe Messiah, well, then you are not a candidate for Olam Abba. The Talmud tells us that when a person faces the heavenly tribunal, after you die, you're going to get some degree of accounting and reckoning for your behavior, a person is given six questions by the heavenly tribunal. One of those questions is, Tzipisa Yeshua. did you anticipate, did you await Yeshua, which means redemption, salvation? Did you await the Messiah? So this is one of the six questions that someone's asked when they face the heavenly tribunal. It's obviously very, very central. Now, if you look at our prayers, so the codified prayers, the Shmona Esrei, the Amida prayer, the 18 benedictions that are part of our codified prayer, by my count, 10 of those prayers include requests and or references to the Messianic redemption. 
So this is not some sort of ancillary part of our religion. This is a central component of our religion, and it appears everywhere. Now, when you finish the aforementioned Amida prayer, there's a small post-prayer supplication. May it be the will before you. Let the temple be rebuilt speedily in our days. And may we worship you there in fear, in trepidation, in reverence, as it was in the past. As we shall see, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem is a central component of Messiah. Outside of our prayer and outside, of course, these principles and outside of the investigation that the heavenly tribunal conducts on people, if you look at just the Torah in general, there are major segments of our life that we cannot fulfill today. There's hundreds of mitzvot that relate to the temple and to temple times. And thus, there are huge swaths of our religion that we cannot fulfill and we hope to be able to fulfill when Messiah comes and the temple is rebuilt. So again, I'm trying to impress upon us the centrality of this subject. Our calendar really orients around the temple, which again will be rebuilt with Messiah. If you look at the fast days, for example, the ninth of Av, the 10th of Teves, the 17th of Tammuz, and the fast of Gedalia. So four out of our six yearly annual fast days correspond to the destruction of the temple. This plays a major part in Jewish life. Of course, all the other festivals, Yom Kippur, we talk about what it was like in the temple. And Pesach, Passover, we are commanded to bring the pastoral sacrifice. We can't do that today. All the sacrifices and offerings that are part and parcel of the holidays cannot be done without the temple. It's safe to say that Messiah and everything that comes along with Messiah is a very highly central subject. It's a massive subject. It's also quite a controversial one. I think it's also very exciting. But beware, it's a subject that is rife with misconceptions and misunderstandings. It's a minefield that we are about to wade into. And as we always try to do here, we're going to rely on what our sages tell us. We're going to try to study it rigorously and comprehensively, but... We're going to emphasize and we're going to be true to the actual text and to the sources. There are big subjects ahead of us. So let's try to get a little sense of what we're going to try to cover in our explication and study of this principle. So, of course, the first question is, what is Messiah? What do we mean when we talk about the King Messiah, when we talk about the Messianic Era, What's the point of it? How does it fit into the big picture of creation and what the goal of our existence is? What's the timeline? What happens when? What happens before Messiah? What happens during Messiah? What's the arrival of Messiah like? What happens when you're actually living in the Messianic era? What happens afterwards? What is the revolution that Messiah is going to unleash in the world? How does it happen? 
What are the various different ways that it can happen? What changes occur during the Messianic era? What role do we have to play in effectuating Messiah? It's not just something that happens from on high. It turns out when you study the subject, we have a say in determining how and when Messiah will happen. The identity of Messiah. Who is Messiah? What are the qualifications for being Messiah? How do we determine if a person who is a claimant to that role is legit or is a charlatan, a fraud? There is the advanced subject of the two Messiahs, Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. It turns out there, there are two Messiahs. What is that? And finally, no analysis of Messiah can be complete without talking about the troubled history, the perilous history of mistaken Messiah identification throughout history, the false messiahs, the unactualized or unrealized messiahs, and all the flawed messianic prognostications. What are the perils of messianic forecasting? As the Ramam said, part of this principle is to not try to figure out when it's going to happen. The bones will be bloated of those who try to figure it out. There is a lot to talk about. So let's begin. To get started, I want to read another citation from Rambam. The first little bit that we read earlier, that was from his comment to Mishnah where he lays out principle one, two, three, four, all the way through principle number 13. But every one of these principles, in his other writings, he references and expands upon it. And in his Mishneh Torah, which is again the codified oral Torah of Rambam, 14 books, he dedicates two chapters in the book of Shoftim, the book of Judges, 14 books, the last one is the book of Judges. In the laws of kings and their wars, which is the last section of the last book, the final two chapters, the Ramam dedicates an authoritative and sweeping treatment of this subject. The majority of the subjects that we need to cover in depth, of course, he's going to address. And I think it's the first place that we go to try to understand more about these 13 principles. Again, they're, they're authored by the Ramam in his commentary to Mishnah, but his magnum opus, Mishnah Torah, the 14 books, he's going to expand upon it. And it's interesting that the very last subject that he covers is Messiah. So there's this 14 books, and the last section of the last set of laws in the last book, so chapters 11 and 12 of the laws of kings and their wars are dedicated to the Messiah and the Messianic age. And he's going to plunge us into this uh, into this subject. And he's going to try to cover the whole subject. And we're going to read what he says. And then we're going to go into the subject in a more methodical way, going through it piece by piece. He's going to cover everything. And we're going to read it. And just get a little flavor of the subject and then go through it, please God, piecemeal. He's going to focus both on the individual, King Messiah, and on the era. And he's going to begin chapter 10 with 
the job description. So to all aspirants for this job, listen carefully. King Messiah will in the future arise and he will restore the Davidic monarchy. The Davidic monarchy has been dormant for a very long time. The last king of the Davidic monarchy was in the first temple era, so 2,500 years ago or so. Now, it's true that after the second temple was destroyed, we had some semblance of a Davidic monarchy because the leaders of the people, both in Israel, the princes, and in Babylon, the Etzelarchs, the uh, Reishkalusa, they were all descendants of David. But a Davidic king we have not had for a very long time. Messiah's got to restore that. That's just the first task. He's got to build the temple in the most volatile parcel of land in the whole world. Can't build it in uh, in Lagrange, Texas. You have to build it in Jerusalem on Temple Mount. He has to gather the dispersed Jews. Part of the Messianic era is the coalescing of the Jews from all the far-flung corners of the earth back together as one nation. Now that, of course, means geographically reuniting the Jews, but also spiritually reuniting the nation to restore the people who are immersed amongst the other nations to restore them back to their faith and to their commitment to God and to his Torah. Messiah needs to reinstitute Torah laws to the ways that they were previously. All the laws, every law of the Torah must be reinstated. That means in the aforementioned temple, you have to bring all the sacrifices. And Shemitah and Yovel, all the mitzvahs as they are told to us in the Torah must be completely restored. That's the beginning. Simple list of tasks. Just do one and then the next one and then, well, you're a candidate. And we have to believe and anticipate his arrival. Otherwise, we are repudiating the Torah of Moshe. And the Ramah quotes the many verses that discuss Messiah and the Messianic era in the Torah. So, in the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3, 4, 5. And of course, the whole section of Bilam, when Bilam is hired to curse the Jewish people, instead is forced to bless them. He forecasts, this is in Numbers 24, he forecasts about, about both Messiahs, i.e. King David, and the final Messiah who will be a descendant of King David. And the Ramam adds another proof from the Torah, an interesting one, from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 8. The verse is talking about the cities of refuge. When we have an accidental killer, they have to go to a city of refuge. And there are six designated cities of refuge. And the verse tells us that the Almighty will expand our lands and will add three more cities of refuge. Now, the Ramam points out that that has not yet happened. And the Torah, the Almighty of the Torah, does not forecast things 
that will not happen. Implied from this verse is that our lands will expand and we will, in fact, add those cities of refuge in the times of Messiah. So the Rambam begins by citing the scriptural sources in the Torah, and then he tells us, well, we don't need to talk about the rest of the Tanakh, the rest of our canon, because all the words of the prophets are full of references and citations to the Messiah. So we're starting off with the Rambam in his Mishnah Torah, and we've learned the job description of Messiah. What do you need to do? We've learned about our mitzvah to believe and to await and to anticipate Messiah. And we learned some of the scriptural sources about this idea. Next, the Rambam guides us as to what are the demands placed upon Messiah. How do we verify that he's legit? There have been a lot of people who have claimed to be the Messiah in our history. Unfortunately, our history is littered with false messiahs. How do we vet a messianic claimant? I don't know if they're legit or if they're a fraud. What kind of inspections do we do to a potential messiah? Says the Ramam, don't think that the king messiah has to do miracles or wonders or renew the laws of the universe, or to revive the dead. That is not what we ask Messiah to do. We don't ask for supernatural signs. And he brings a proof. Rabbi Akiva was one of the great sages of the times of the Mishnah. Rabbi Akiva believed in the messianic qualifications of a gentleman named Bar Kokhba. Who was Bar Kokhba? Bar Kokhba launched a revolt against the Romans about 60 years after the temple was destroyed. It seems like he actually rebuilt at least a version of the temple. He was a great scholar, a great warrior, seemed to check a lot of boxes to qualify as Messiah. And he got adherence. And not just Joe Schmoes, the great Rabbi Akiva, and many of the other sages of that era. Heavyweights, not lightweights, heavyweights, believed that he was Messiah. The sages of the time were on board. And then, of course, it was proven that he was not the Messiah when he was killed due to his sins. And once he was killed, it became clear and evident that he was not, in fact, Messiah. As an aside, This tells us that once someone dies, they cease to be a candidate for Messiah. There are some people that mistakenly believe otherwise. But the Ramam tells us that if you consider something to be a good candidate for Messiah, and then they die, well, you know that they're not Messiah. Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues thought Bar Kokhba was Messiah, and then he died, and then they knew that he was not Messiah. End of the aside. But the Ramam proves from this story that you don't need to do miracles. What did the sages ask from Bar Kokhba or Bar Kaziva as he was renamed? They didn't ask him to do miracles. They didn't ask him to do signs or wonders. 
This proves that we don't need to ask Messiah to do miracles. That's not part of the vetting. What is the vetting? We'll get to in a second. And the Ramam adds, certainly not an iota of Torah can be changed. You cannot add to the Torah. You cannot subtract from the Torah. And if someone does, in fact, tamper with the Torah, adding or subtracting from the Word of God, then you know for sure this person is a wicked person and a heretic. So we don't ask for miracles. We don't ask for signs. We don't ask to revive the dead. And if if the person changes even one letter of the Torah, we know for sure that they're wicked and they are a heretic and they are not Messiah. So we know what we don't look for when identifying a potential candidate. What do we look for? So the Ram tells us, whenever someone wants to evaluate the candidacy of a potential Messiah, this is where we go to. If there is a king from the house of David who studies Torah and performs mitzvot like David his father, the written Torah, the oral Torah, and compels all of Israel to go in the ways of Torah and to strengthen the ways of Torah, and he wages the wars of Hashem. Such a king fulfills these qualifications. You can assume is Messiah. We don't know for sure, but we can operate under the assumption that this person is Messiah, but it's still an assumption. They have to finish the job to know for sure. And if he was successful, and he built the temple in Jerusalem, and he gathered the far-flung Jews from the various corners of the earth, then that Messiah that you assumed was Messiah, now you know for sure. So what does it take? The Ram tells us, we have to have a king from the house of David, who studies Torah and performs mitzvahs like David his father, compels all of Israel to follow Torah, wages the wars of Hashem. Once we have that, we're assuming this person is Messiah, and if they go the final mile and build the temple and gather all of Israel, then we know for sure. Simple. The Ramam organizes it for us. Now, if this person who we are assuming is Messiah, but we don't know for sure yet, if they didn't succeed or they died or were killed, then we know for sure that they are not the Messiah that the Torah promised about. Yes, they're a king. And yes, they could be righteous. But not every king is Messiah. And then the Ramam adds, we also know why we have this phenomenon of an assumed Messiah who later is proven to be not a real Messiah because God is testing us. We are expecting, over the course of our history, fake, false, unrealized messiahs. That is to be expected. And we knew this at a time. It's forecasted in the prophets. And they are tests. Tests from God to test our loyalty and our fidelity to God and his Torah. Everyone's very excited by the notion of Messiah. We have to be governed by Torah. 
and not get caught up in the excitement and the passion and forget our true loyalties. Now, the next part of Rambam was censored by the Christian censors. So for hundreds of years, Rambams were printed without these paragraphs. When we read the paragraphs, we'll see why. The Rambams will be talking about other monotheistic religions who sought to replace Judaism. So if you look at the, the newer versions of Rambam, many of them actually reprinted it because now we're not scared of the censors. We could write whatever we want. But for many years, the Christians had to vet and approve of what you're writing. So there are, in fact, sections of the Talmud that were censored. And including in that is the part of the Rambam we're about to cover that was censored by the Christian censors. He's going to be talking about the other religions and the context of these religions, how we view them and what is their destiny. He's going to be here with Christianity. He's going to talk about Islam as well. And even Yeshu HaNatsri, Yeshu the Nazarene, who considered himself to be Messiah. And he was executed in the Jewish court for his crimes. We already knew to expect someone like this. And he quotes a verse in Daniel. The verse is talking about how there's going to be someone who's going to arise, who's going to be a stumbling block for the Jewish people because he's going to be a fake Messiah. Our prophets are forecasting a real Messiah who's going to save us, who's going to redeem us, who's going to gather us back in, who's going to strengthen the mitzvos. And then we have this guy who does the opposite. He caused the mass killing of Jews and the scattering of Jews and the depressing of Jews and the subjugation of Jews and the replacement of the Torah and to cause large parts of the world to worship other gods except Hashem. So the exact opposite of what Messiah is supposed to do, the fake Messiah did. And we knew it was coming, it was foretold in the prophets. Then the Rambam takes this subject even further. This is a very interesting idea that he's going to share with us. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God allow this fake Messiah to get so popular? The Rambam begins by telling us, well, of course, God's calculations are completely beyond us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are beyond us. But this is the reason why the other monotheistic religions were so popular both the Christians and now he introduces the Muslims. They are here to play an important role. Their role is to straighten the path for Messiah, to clear the path for Messiah, to fix the whole world to worship God. That's the role of Messiah. They're going to help facilitate that. So the Ram is introducing another point here. Messiah is not an idea that's limited to the Jewish people. 
The transformation, the revolution of Messiah is about getting the entire world on board. Everyone gaining knowledge of God. Everyone earning fear and trepidation and faith in God. Our nation, we already committed ourselves to God with the Exodus, with Sinai, with Torah. That has to go global with Messiah. You have a very unusual reality for hundreds of years. One nation, one small nation, one insular nation, with complete fidelity to God. Of course, you know, we still have free will and make mistakes, of course. But the nation's committed to God. And you have a whole sea of paganism, a whole sea of idolatry in the whole world. And Messiah is a description of the world where everyone comes around, not just the Jewish people. How do you get a world full of pagans, a world full of idolaters to accept the one God? That is the role of these other religions. These other religions, which, by the way, are are rooted in the other parts of the family of Abraham. So, of course, Ishmael, he's the father of the Ishmaelites, the Arabs, which, of course, became the Muslims. And Esav, he is the father of the Christians. So it's almost like the other parts, the other branches of the family that weren't quite there to be part of the Jewish people, they're going to do the legwork, the grunt work, the mass influence to fill the whole world with the notion of Messiah and with the notion of Torah and with the notion of mitzvos and even the most distant parts of the world and the most distant lands, the idea of Torah, the idea of an invisible God becomes ubiquitous. Knowledge of God is everywhere. The Torah, to varying degrees, of course, is accepted universally. The only problem is that it's not perfect. Some of them say that, well, the, the mitzvahs had a had an end date, and they're not forever. The Torah was abrogated. And some say that, well, Messiah already came, and there's the secrets were revealed. So the, the concept, the big picture, that there's one invisible God, all the powers are coalesced in one, and he gave us prophecy, and he gave us Torah, he gave us instruction. The big transformation that's needed, is done by our cousins. It makes Messiah's job much easier. 90, 95, 93, 85, depends. I don't know how you would evaluate that, but a certain percentage of Messiah's work is done already. The Christians and the Muslims are there to clear the path, to straighten the path, to make it easier for Messiah. And when Messiah actually arises, and he succeeds, And he is elevated. Everyone will make their slight adjustments. And they'll realize that their forefathers gave them a slight mistake. And their antecedents and their prophets led them astray. And they will come back to true faith. The Romans, whenever they absorbed any nation, they absorbed 
those nations' deities as well. And they ended up with a a massive cachet. Maybe that's not the right word. Cash. Is that pronounced cash? A massive amount. A massive repository of idols. 30,000 according to Roman historians. So now they don't have perfect faith, but they've narrowed down from 30,000 to three. It's much closer. And of course, the, the, the Muslims believe in complete monotheism. How'd that happen? Our cousins did the grunt work, did the legwork for Messiah to prepare the world, to soften them for the Abrahamic mission to be completed by Messiah. That is the beginning, the first chapter of Ramam, the Laws of Kings. He's talking to us about Messiah. We've learned a lot. Let's continue to the final chapter in his magisterial work, Mishnah Torah. Again, it is also dedicated to the concept, the subject of Messiah. He begins with the state of the world during the Messianic era. Don't believe, don't consider that in the times of Messiah, the rules of the world, the rules of nature will be nullified. Or there'll be some innovation that changes creation. There will be no changes to the laws of nature. There are not going to be any supernatural adjustments to how the world operates. But what about the verse that says that the wolf will lie with the sheep? Verses that indicate otherwise are metaphorical. And there's a metaphor, the wolf and the lamb. This is a metaphor that the the Jews, who are always being preyed upon and persecuted by the proverbial wolves, we are going to dwell in peace and stability and security with our erstwhile foes. And everyone will return to the true religion. And everyone will be moral and just and righteous. People won't steal. People won't be corrupted. People will do what's proper and live in peace with Israel. And all the verses that talk about Messiah in ways that are supernatural, they are all to be understood in this fashion. They're all metaphors. And the exact interpretation of each of these verses, well, that's something we're going to discover when Messiah is already here. But don't make the mistake in thinking that Messiah is going to result in some radically different reality of the world as we know it. There won't be any supernatural changes. And the Ram continues with this theme and quotes a foundational statement of the Talmud. Ein bein belvad. The only difference between this world and the times of Messiah, the only difference, Shibud Malchios Bavad. It's only the subjugation to foreign kings. And then he begins to talk about the timeline. And he doesn't speak definitively. He says, well, it seems like from the simple reading of the prophets that at the beginning of the Days of Messiah, there will be a big apocalyptic war. The war of Gog, Umagog. And before this war, the prophet will come. 
which prophet, we don't know, the prophet will come and straighten the Jews and prepare their hearts. And the verse that he quotes about this talks about Elijah, but Ramam calls him just a prophet. And then he talks about Elijah specifically. It's not clear if he's talking about two different prophets or this is just Elijah in both instances. And this prophet does not come to purify the impure or to render impure the pure and not to disqualify people that are considered to be legit. If you have someone today that's viewed as being righteous or, or, or being okay and, you know, 15 generations ago there was some sort of illegitimate union, that person's a bastard, it's not Elijah's job to figure out or to tell us, you know, who is not legitimate. And he's not coming also to render legitimate someone who is viewed as illegitimate, but rather to place peace in the world. And then the Ram tells us that there are those amongst the sages that tell us that before the arrival of Messiah, Elijah will come. And then he tells us in all these matters, the timeline and what, exactly what happens, we don't know the details. And even amongst the prophets, they didn't know these matters were hidden. And our tradition, which gives us tremendous precision and clarity in so many different areas, it does not include the details of this. And that's why there's so much dispute in these matters, so much opacity and obfuscation and lack of clarity in these matters because we don't have a clear tradition and even the prophets didn't know exactly what's going to happen. But don't worry. The precise details, how it's going to happen and the timeline, all the minutiae of this subject are not an important principle in our religion. So we do have a, we have a principle to believe and to await and to anticipate Messiah. But the exact details, what's going to happen and when's going to happen and who's going to happen and all that, that's not an important principle in our religion. And therefore he says, don't spend too much time on this. Don't make the majority of your study in the, the various midrashic commentaries. Don't study that at length. Don't make it a principle. The details of what's going to be in the Messianic era not really helpful for you to study. It brings you to neither love of God nor fear of God. Our actions should only be done if we can reasonably consider or, or imagine they will bring us to either love of God or fear of God. This won't bring us to either one of those. Also, the Ramam reminds us, don't try to calculate when it will happen this is not what we do. Rather, we wait and we believe and we anticipate, but we don't spend too much time focusing on the exact details. So there's an interesting contrast over here. You know, how, how important is this subject? How important is the Messiah? On one end, of course, it's a, it's, it's a principle. 
And if you want to get admission to the afterlife, Olam Abba, you have to believe in it. That's a major focus in our prayers. And it's one of the six questions that we get asked when we face the heavenly tribunal. It's one of the six debriefing questions. Yet, the Ramam tells us the details and how exactly everything works out is not so important. It's been noted as well, the Ramam's Mishnah Torah, those 14 books, are written in, in topical order. They're, they're organized conceptually. The first law that it talks about is to believe in God. The foundations of Torah, that's how it starts. The very, very, very last thing that he talks about, the last chapters of the last section of the last book, is Messiah. Now, what is the second to last subject that the Ramam talks about? The laws of Gentiles. It's been noted, the Ramam is writing his book for Jews. He is, he's signaling with the layout of what he puts where, it's actually more important for us to know about what non-Jews need to know than to think about Messiah. The Ramam is systematically de-emphasizing the study of this subject. It brings us to neither love of God nor fear of God. We have to believe in it. We have to anticipate it. But this is not something we make our focus on in a, in a detailed way. The Ramam continues that Messiah's job is different than Elijah's job. He's there to determine tribal affiliation. So, of course, the Jewish people, we start off as 12 distinct tribes. And then over the course of the centuries and millennia, there was intermarriage amongst the tribes and people lost track of it. We no longer were limited to our tribal lands. No one knows what tribe they're in. Once Messiah gets settled and all the Jews are coalesced around him, through the prophecy that's bestowed upon him, he's going to organize the nation into tribes or back into tribes. He's going to start with the Kohanim and the Levites. And the imposters who are pretending to be Jews but are actually not part of the nation, he's going to cast away. And then amongst the Jews, he's going to figure out which people are attributed to which tribes. He is not going to identify which are mamzerim. Unless someone is known to be a bastard, they are good. That too is part of the responsibility of Messiah. Now the Rambam ends his sweeping overview of Messiah with the question of why. Why do we want Messiah? Why is this desirable? Why are we coveting Messiah? Why are we anticipating it? The sages and the prophets did not covet Messiah, not to control the whole world or to dominate the other nations, not to be uplifted over the other nations, not to eat and drink and revel, rather to have time and flexibility peace of mind, to study Torah and its wisdoms without disruptions and without threats in order that through our study of Torah, we can merit Olam 
the Rambam is reminding us, don't get confused. The ultimate goal is still what it always was, and that is to be meritorious of Olam Abba. The Messianic era is designed to enable that, to facilitate that. It's the conditions where achieving Olam Abba is most possible. It's an auspicious and propitious time for a person to be able to earn Olam Abba. The Ram tells us that Messiah, it's really not different than this world. It's only subjugation to foreign kings. Olam Abba is a very, very different world. And what that world looks like, we're really going to get into in the, the 13th and final principle. But the goal of Messiah and the whole Messianic era, it's to enable us, to facilitate for us the possibility of earning Olam Abba. What the Messianic era will look like, it's going to be a time of great prosperity and abundance. There won't be any famine. There won't be hunger. There won't be war. There won't be envy. There won't be harmful competition. Goodness will be abundant. Delicacies will be abundant. And there'll be time and space to know God. And the efforts of the world will be upgraded. It's not going to be the silly rat race to get more and more physical, physical things until you just die. The focus of the world will be redirected and shifted to pursue what really matters, to pursue knowledge of God. That world, he quotes the verse, will be a world that is replete with knowledge of God as much as water covers the seabed. Thus concludes these two chapters, the final two chapters of Mishnah Torah. Again, the Ram gives us an authoritative and sweeping coverage of Messiah. And reading it teaches us a lot. We learn, of course, the job requirements of Messiah. Got to be a king from the house of David who studies Torah and performs mitzvot like David, his ancestor. Rebuild the temple on Temple Mount, restore all the laws of the Torah, gather all of Israel, compel the nation to follow the Torah, wage the wars of Hashem. And of course, once Messiah has already been established, organize the nation, determine who's a real Kohen, who's a real Levite, and organize the nation into tribes. We learn how to vet a candidate for Messiah, what's asked of him, what is not asked of him. We learned about the concept of false and fake messiahs. That is to be expected. It's a test. We learned about Christianity and Islam and the role that they play to clear the path for Messiah. We learned about the Messianic era, the various other things that will accompany King Messiah himself, Elijah and his role, the prophet, the war of Gog and Magog, the dramatic changes that will transpire to the whole world, not changes to the laws of nature, of course, but how the world focuses its attention and its resources. There are not going to be any supernatural changes, 
And all the verses that imply otherwise are metaphors, but it's a world of abundance. It's a world of, of stability and security so that the pursuit of what really matters can be undertaken. And the goal, that's to have the stability and the peace of mind to study Torah and to thereby earn Olam Abba. That is the Rambam, and it's a great way to get started on this very critical principle, principle number 12. I think it does give us really the layout of the whole subject. We understand how critical this subject is and why it made so many appearances in our daily life and our daily prayers in our annual yearly cycle. We see how it is quite a large subject and we see the room for misconceptions and misunderstandings. And we have a lot of work ahead of us to really dig into the subject with great focus and detail, to really understand what's happening with Messiah and the timeline as best as we can understand it, and the changes that are going to be present during the Messianic era, and the roles that we are expected to play now and then. What do we know about the identity of Messiah? What do we know about the qualifications of Messiah? Of course, the subject of the two messiahs that the Ram does not talk about, but our sages elsewhere do. We have a lot to cover. I'm really excited that we're finally here. I remember, you know, when we were still in the earlier, in the earlier principles, I was like, I can't wait till we get here. And now we're here. So with the help of the Almighty, we will cover this subject, please God, with our focus on trying to get a comprehensive and rigorous understanding of the subject to the best of our ability. And I'm excited to do this together with all of y'all. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Call me with any questions, comments, feedback. Of course, I'm in the Torch Center right now, and I work for Torch. And if you want to support our work, torchweb.org is the address to do that. Whenever I do a podcast in the description, there's a link in the description if you want to see more about what we do here at the Torch Center and maybe to support our work. You want to reach out to me, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.